everyone, this is John. And this is Wales. And this is Ryan. And this is the Nintendo Show, the best day Nintendo podcast on the internet. This is going to be the retro show for December 2023. And what we do in the retro shows, we time travel. We go back in time. We take a look at what happened in the month, 21 years previous. And fellas, what a time to be alive. Oh my God. <laughs> We're closing sure out. Was. We're closing out uh, 2002. We're going to be moving to 2003, which is how time works. That's right. Next month. Uh, we all got our cigars and our top hats and our bottles of champagne. Yeah, and yeah. Close out the year. Still, still celebrating that the Y two K bug didn't get us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, so they're, a little gun shy that may still. <laughs> it's just a little bit late. <laughs> yeah, it's just late. <laughs> Everyone still got like their their prep kits of D batteries and can it, it, Campbell it, soup. It was kind of traffic. It you know it just. So. Oh, we, we got a, a handful of games to talk about. Not too much music, but a whole ton of movies came out. And we were talking off-air. Uh, just like, depending on how we're doing on time, uh, we'll go through as many movies as uh, we, we have all, like, the majority of us have seen um, recently. And then if, uh, depending on how we're doing on time, if we want to punt some to January, uh, we'll do that. Because um, there weren't a whole lot of really interesting movies that came out in January of 2003. There are a few interesting ones, but like two or three, so it'd be good to have some extra things in the bank to discuss if we feel like it. But anyway, without further ado, let's let's time capsule this. Let's put it within the context of the current events. I only have one thing uh, of note that I put in my notes. Ryan, you have a few things as well, yeah? I have three, th- three events occurred, yes. Uh, the, the only one I have is that LinkedIn was founded. Oh, okay. Which is, That's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. A, a sort of a job search, uh, like resume uh, uh, dumping ground that still exists. Like you, people still use LinkedIn yeah. for like job searching and like recruiting and stuff. It's actually yeah, it's still a it's a very important. It's a kind of a weird platform because you know a lot of social media you casually browse all of the time. LinkedIn is one you care a fuck ton about in a very specific scenario mm-hmm. <laughs> for most people, unless your job is being a recruiter. Um, when you're considering switching jobs or if you're unemployed or anything, LinkedIn's r- vital. It's really, really important. Yeah, yeah, especially for like uh, the sort of a, a, what you consider a professional job, like a white collar kind of thing. Uh, and like, it is interesting to sort of compare it to like a social media um, device or, or application because like you don't social media you think like this more like a casual way of connecting to people it's kind of like social media is like for this one specific purpose of you know finding a new a new career or a new job within your your field uh, yeah that, that's their that's their niche they want to be like business social networking and i guess that's what they, they probably are struggling i would imagine as a company and as a brand that's probably the thing that they most want to do is become more of the kind of daily social media site that you get into and how do you make it be more about you know kind of like mingling with people in your field and not just like hey i need to create an account out of necessity because people want to look at my linkedin profile when i'm applying for a job but yeah all right what else you got on uh your list oh um that's one one sad death i'm sure there have been bigger deaths throughout the year um that we just don't note but i, I am aware that joe strummer of the clash passed hmm. uh in december 2002 very sad. I absolutely love him. He's an amazing artist. And I believe we'll have a posthumous album of his to talk about in 2003 that is absolutely incredible. Um, you know, I love The Clash a lot. 
And Joe Strummer is, you know, not the only guy in the band, but he's a really big part of it. So, um, you have the final episode of Firefly Aww. premiered. Um, which get this is actually the pilot of the show. Right. Um, yeah, Fox did this entire series dirty um, by not only uh, putting it on Friday night, which is basically like a dumping ground for bad shows, typically. Um, they also rearranged the order in which the episodes premiered. So if you, this was your first episode of Firefly, you'd be like, that was a punchy little pilot. This is going to be a good show. Oh, that's the last. That's it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Done. Um, real shame. Real shame. It only got one season. And I do uh, like that show. It, it is a punchy little yeah. sci-fi show. Oh, the show's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorites. Which, you know, we, we've, way back in the day, uh, talked about this show quite a bit. We had, like, individual, like, 15-minute bite-sized episodes dedicated to each episode of the show that me and Wes were doing. Um, but, yeah, I, I really dig this show. Uh, it, you know, often described as a Western space. Some of the more interesting things about it is, like, the way it sort of uh, uh, bends or breaks the rules of cinematography. There are things within the show, uh, especially when it's showing... Uh, the the models in space where they're using things like whip pans or zooms uh, and like when they zoom in on something it'll be like out of focus for a minute and like kind of like zoom back out to correct and th- these are more things that you see in uh, like uh, a documentary like guerrilla documentary type of films Th- those sort of like cinematic techniques are generally considered unprofessional and uh, very amateur and more narrative focused. Uh, mediums like film and television so yeah interesting the way that it it decided to break these rules that is very clever i I honestly am not a big fan of battlestar galactic i only think probably watched a handful of episodes but i know that that was something they for sure did in a lot of their their Mm. dog fighting space fights and stuff Mm -hmm. like that it was filmed like you know in the trenches where you're like you're saying they're zooming in and out weirdly things coming in and out of focus it really is supposed to sort of put you in the element yeah yeah and and, well you know, we're, we don't have to get too nerdy right here, right now. But Battlestar Galactica used a lot of the same similar techniques, but was a much more of a like a space opera. You had this larger cast of characters, and sometimes you wouldn't even run into what you consider like the main cast. And given episodes, they had like stuff that well, more focused on uh, different characters, so you get to spend time with a lot of different people. Whereas with Firefly, to circle back around to that, was more about here's your core crew. And they're going to have some sort of adventure in this one episode. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, yeah. I know Battlestar was a very self-serious. Oh, for sure. Show, oh, yeah. And, and this is like, like you're saying, it is very much. I like Battlestar. Kind of like I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that great. show as well. I say frack now. Yeah, that's sure. Come on. I don't know when it premiered, but I, I imagine it has to be fairly soon. I imagine this was a product of, of the early 2000s. So maybe we'll talk about Battlestar at some point. Cool. Um, only other thing I have is that I love the 80s premieres on VH1. Huh. Um, I think it's interesting because... I mean, I mean, you guys have seen the whole I love the blank. Yeah. Right? Like, I love the 70s, I love the 80s, and all that. Was this the first so, one? Um, I think that at this point they had maybe had the 70s. I love the 70s, but... Um, to my knowledge, this is the first one they did in for specifically for the '80s, and this was a very influential one for them. Um, I think it's you have to kind of remember that you know in 2000, you know, two when we're talking like you had the internet sort of, and you could look stuff up, but for a lot of people, the true like nostalgia of watching a show like this probably really hit hard. 
you know, you or I could go on right now and be like, you know, what were the top 50 coolest items of 1994? And there's an article that has 100, you know. Uh, back then, you didn't have the kind of access to all of this information and cataloging and things like that. So when you go back and watch one of these episodes, it is it is pretty cool. Right, and you didn't have things uh, like too many, like Apple Podcasts or YouTube videos where it's just people creating these these nostalgia pits that you can fall down into like like the the sort of format of the the i love the 80s thing and uh, the the i love the 90s and all these different vh1 things they did is they would like do sort of like we're doing here where they go through all these pop culture things from the given year or decade that they're focusing on and just having a bunch of people like uh celebrities or pseudo celebrities talk about just like tell you hey the rubik's cube was a thing remember the rubik's cube everybody <laughs> yeah yeah I, I appreciate this show because it is a largely what we do here on the retro show there is absolutely this nostalgia binge that we couldn't have done back then like we would not it's so easy nowadays to just throw to compile all of this crazy information and all of this detail about stuff that back then they probably had to do so much research mm-hmm. just to get this stuff together and, and you know, and again, have these talking heads who, you know, were typically just writers and comedians for the most part, B-list comedians. There are not a lot of famous people doing it, but these were people that lived through the era and were themselves reflecting on it. So I, I think for a home viewer to kind of do that alongside them must have... I, I remember when I was watching some of it as a kid, like, or as a kid, but back in 2002, a real nostalgia binge. Very cool to be reminded of things you haven't thought about in forever. Yeah, for sure. You know, so... Interesting stuff. That's that's uh, that's all I had for events. That kind of wraps it up. So, all right, let's jump into the games, and we're going to start with the yes. Game Boy Advance because the Game Boy Advance is doing a lot of our heavy lifting for us this yeah. month. Um, after you know October, November, super busy months, tons and tons of games coming out. We're now entering another month where there's not too much, but the Game Boy Advance was bringing it. First of all, with the Legend of Zelda: A Link to the Past and Four Swords. So this was a a port of the Super Nintendo game, A Link to the Past, co-developed by both Capcom and Nintendo. This was after uh, Capcom uh, made the Oracle games on the Game Boy Color that we talked about a while back. So there, there's this joint venture studio between Capcom and Nintendo called Flagship. I couldn't find any solid information if they were involved, but you know, if Capcom and Nintendo are both involved, then Flagship was probably involved in some way or another. And of course, published by Nintendo. Um, so I got a hot take for you guys. A Link to the Past, pretty good game. Yeah, yeah, it's up there. It's, it's easily got to be, I don't know, top five, 600 games ever made. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, for me, it makes a short list of all-time greatest games. I absolutely love it. And it's, it's really great that this was available portably. Like, this is a game that you know works really well, of course, on a console. But like to have on a, a little portable system that you can take with you anywhere, or like being like a young person and having it like on a car ride or something, because none of the like dungeons uh, take very long. I mean, it's not like a, a Twilight Princess where the dungeons can take you, you know, close to two hours. Sometimes you can get through them in a, a reasonable amount of time exploring the overworld like it's dense but it's compact so you can get like from one side to another fairly quickly i think it's um a format of zelda that works really easily with uh a portable console 
Is this the one they remade for the Switch? Negative. Negative. Which one did they do on the Switch? The, uh, they did uh, Link's Awakening. Link's Awakening. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another one that's really well suited for, for portable systems, which makes sense because it was originally for a portable system. Um, But yeah, I, Ryan, you've played this game a ton. Have you ever gone for the 100% collect everything? Mm, what does that entail exactly? I know I filled up the entire inventory screen. Before. Yeah, it's got to be like filling up the entire inventory. Did, did, you, get, did you get the uh, the Golden Bee? The Golden Bee. I don't know that I did that. How, how do you do that? I think like... Actually, that, that... That sounds familiar. I think I may have. That... I might be mixing my games up. That might be in the sequel to this one. But I think it involves like like catching 100 bees and then like you can have a golden one spawn. Oh, I certainly didn't do that. But they're like the bees are fun. Like <laughs> it's yeah. a really great game. I'm going to talk about the bees for a second because <laughs> you you collect them in the bottle and then if you let them go in boss fights, they'll actually like cheese the bosses for you. I think like yeah, they, they make a little bit of chaos happen and kind of fly around and damage them. Yeah, which is a, a really fun touch. And and Nintendo is specifically always really good at like having these weird little details in their games, like things you wouldn't expect. Uh, Twilight Princess. You can cheese the final Ganon fight uh, with the fishing rod. If you cast the fishing rod in in front of his face in just the right way, he gets mesmerized by it and exposes himself to just taking tons of damage. That's really funny. Uh, so the other, uh, anything else about um, Link to the Past? There's a second half of this game called Four Swords. But anything else we want to say about Link to the Past before we move to that other? I mean just. Just to that point, I got it. it's great to point out, and I'm sure it's a well-known thing, um, but just like if you just corner and hit the chickens too many times, mm -hmm. the chickens just all start flying at you, and not even like they just start chasing you down or anything. They're flying from off-screen in all directions. Right. It becomes this insane, like, how quickly can I get to a door to turn this off? <laughs> and it's, it's really fun because you wouldn't expect the game to react to you like that, but like the game is yeah. reacting to your cruelty. Like, hey, don't pick on the chickens. What's wrong with you? Oh, and, and it's not something that's going to accidentally happen. Mm. Like, a, you're, you know, you get in a fight with a guard and there happens to be a chicken in the middle or something. You have to sit there and whack at this thing for, like, I don't know, 20, 30 times. Yeah. You have to hit the damn thing before it actually starts them all attacking. Yeah, you, you have know? to really be trying to kill the chicken before the game is like, come on, dude, cut it out, you psycho. Yeah. <laughs> go, uh, go and... Yeah, uh, again, a great great game. Absolutely love this Go game. break into people's houses and break some pottery some more. Stop picking on the animals. Exactly. Yeah. Um... So the, the other sort of half of this game, like it, like just to get this game by itself would have been really, really great for the system, but there's this whole like other cooperative Zelda game that goes along with it called Four Swords. Um, so in Four Swords, you connect with other Game Boy Advances with uh, your, your link cable, of course, up to four, and each of you controls a different link, and you work your way through these randomized dungeons playing cooperatively while simultaneously competing for rupees. And, you know, whoever collected the most rupees gets, like... Uh, I forget what it is exactly, but I think it's like something like you get first pick of the next item in the dungeon that you're going into. So each link is a different color. You got your, your green, red, blue, and purple. And you all only get one item to work with. And like having a diversity of items is you know going to give you the best advantage within any given dungeon. So someone will get bombs, and another person will get boomerangs, and another person will get like a bow and arrow, that kind of thing. Uh, and this, uh, this sort of randomized dungeon crawler did have a new item that they introduced called the Nat Hat, 
which shrinks Link down to make it possible for him to like move through barriers, like little holes in the wall um, that you know regular size Link is too big to get through. And if this sounds familiar, this sort of mechanic will make a big comeback in the next Game Boy Advance Zelda game called Minish Cap. Sort of introduce oh. this feature where Link becomes smaller. Um, and there are, there are cool like uh, little completion bonuses for doing these things. So once you complete uh, both games, you know, be the final boss in A Link to the Past and work through all the dungeons in Four Swords, you get access to a new dungeon in A Link to the Past called the uh, Palace of the Four Sword. So, you know, a nice, uh, nice little bonus. Give you a reason to work your way through both of them other than, you know, that A Link to the Past is a super fun game. So A Link to the Past on its own, is available on Switch. You can get it on the Switch Online Super Nintendo app. Uh, but Four Swords was only ever released again on DSiWare, which is, of course, no longer available. So there's no way right now to legitimately play Four Swords unless you're looking to get uh, a GBA cart, and it's like 60 bucks a pop. So pretty pricey. Yeah, but is this game worth it? I mean, not when you can play... Like, the main draw for this package is A Link to the Past. Like, Four Swords is a neat idea, and they do, like, a couple more games in this vein. We'll get to the the GameCube version. There's a GameCube version called Four Swords Adventures. Okay, so it is a and, different one than this. Okay. Yes, it, it is a different one. And then there's also the, the Triforce Hero game on 3DS. Kind of uses this formula as well. But, you know... The, the main like adventure that you're going on is going to be in a link to the past and you can play that one you know for for the price of your online subscription which is 20 bucks a year so is playing four swords worth the the 60 dollar cart i mean i would say no it was, it's a neat little experiment and a nice little bonus feature to to playing a link to the past but that's what you really want to do well, also, let's be real, it's $240 because you need to buy four carts and then have four different people mm-hmm. play. It's true. And then you got to have four GBAs and, and link cables. Yeah. Totally worth it. We're doing this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving over to the next GBA game, Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland was released. This one was developed by HAL Labs, who makes the Kirby games, and published by Nintendo, of course. And this is a remake of Kirby's Adventure for the NES. But yeah, a fairly substantial remake because the the Game Boy Advance is like a step and a half above a Super Nintendo. So you got a, a pretty good graphical remake. But you know, mechanically it's what you'd expect for a Kirby side scroller. You run, you jump, you float, you slide, you inhale enemies to absorb their powers. The NES version, Kirby's Adventure, is actually the first game. It wasn't the first Kirby game, but it was the first Kirby game where he absorbed the powers of his enemies. And even like back in the NES version, they were subversive about it too, because some enemies, you know, you wouldn't get any powers. Then other enemies, if you tried to inhale them to absorb powers, they'll actually like get stronger and like dash at you. So, you know, you had to figure out which enemies are going to benefit you and which ones were not. Um, and, and in the NES version, the uh, absorbing powers didn't actually change your, your outfit. That did they, they updated that in Nightmare in Dreamland, so you know you absorb a, a fire-based enemy, you get like a fire hat. In the NES version, you only changed color. So pretty nice little, little new detail 
to give Kirby these different outfits. Like the, he gets the Link hat when he has a sword, so on and so forth. They did also have a four-player co-op in this remake, again, using the Link cables. Uh, all four players play as Kirbys of different colors. It's a pretty short game, only takes about an hour, maybe two, to work through. Only takes like that two hours if you're going for that 100% completion where, you know, you uh, get like the secret exits and play all like the, the side games that are in the game. Um, when you do get that 100% completion, it actually unlocks a harder mode where uh, Kirby basically just has half health to play through the game. And if you 100% the, the harder mode, it unlocks another mode called Meta Knight mode, where you play through the game as Meta Knight. And Meta Knight is pretty much like locked into like sword powers. He doesn't absorb any powers from enemies, so you have to use that one uh, weapon at your disposal. And he does like have more sword techniques than Kirby does. He can do a few different things with his sword. But then he also only has three HP, so you can only take three hits, and then you lose. So I, mean, I think like this game and this handheld version of the game, like, it's really well suited for a handheld device. It's quick to work through and you got multiple modes. So, you know, you, you like maybe work through one in a sitting, like on a car ride, maybe take you like the way back to 100% it. And then like if you're taking multiple trips, you know, you can like play through the harder mode and then try to 100% that and then you get the Meta Knight mode. So I think like... That sort of thing works really well to like these these short bursts of play to where you're you're making significant progress in a short amount of time, but gives you reason to keep going back to it. Uh, it's bright, it's colorful, which is good because we won't see a lit screen for the GBA for another two months. You're still working on that horizontal, <laughs> no light screen. Um, sold uh, just shy of a million. You know, not great, but not not too shabby. It's all right. I mean, there's some cool mechanics in play in this. I'm watching some videos right now. I mean, just the way that this guy's playing it with, like, getting that laser thing that bounces around the corners to hit guys in the way. And there's a, there's a lot going on in this little game. Yeah, Kirby's, like, never a super challenging game, but it always gives you, like, things to experiment with that are, you know, sometimes pretty, pretty fun. It, like, it finds ways to surprise you if you're engaging with the game. Um, really solid reviews. Looking at, like, eights across the board. This one is available on the Nintendo Switch Online Game Boy Advance expansion if you're paying, like, the extra for the expansion pack, which is good because it will set you back about 40 bucks for a used cart. So, nice to have this one available digitally. All right, so if you're getting cartridges, you're $100 deep. That's true. Um, anything else we need to address about Kirby before we plow forward here? No. No, it looks interesting. Cool. So, Street Fighter Alpha 3 came out on the Game Boy Advance, fellas. Uh, this one, developed by... Uh, Capcom and published by Capcom, of course. Uh, Crawfish Interactive ported the GBA version. Um, they're, they're a UK studio that went defunct in or around 2003. Uh, they also did the Game Boy Advance version of Reign of Fire, so I thought that was notable. Oh, okay. But, you know, as you expect, it's a port of the 1998 arcade fighting game. And I've, I've never really had a strong grasp of the release structure of Street Fighter. There's Street Fighter... 
there's Street Fighter 2 and a couple different versions of it. You know, you got uh, uh, World Warrior and Turbo, and, and those I have a pretty good grasp on. Um, and then there's 4, 5, and 6, which came out recently. But, like, there's this, these murky waters sort of in the middle. Um, there, there is a Street Fighter 3, but I don't know that Street Fighter Alpha 3 is Street Fighter 3 or Street Fighter Alpha something different, and there's three versions of Alpha. Or is it supposed to be Street Fighter 3 Alpha? Uh, I think Alpha 3 is really is supposed to be sort of that, um, what would you say, baton pass between the styles of games that they're going to have. And Alpha 3 looks and feels a little bit more like the classic Street Fighter title. Well, specifically Street Fighter 2, and like you said, you know, I think there's Turbo and Hyper Fighting, and then there's the classic version, World Warriors. And Alpha 3 still looks and feels a bit like the older style before moving into... Um, you know, what we now know as the modern ones that have come out. Hmm. Okay. Like, I mean, and, and you know, I, I do like Alpha 3. I've played it a little bit. Uh, there's actually a, a giant, like, anniversary Street Fighter collection you can get. I believe it's, I'm pretty sure it's on the Switch. Yeah. Um, that has all of these different versions of it. Um, and it's just, the only thing that I guffaw at is the idea of trying to play on a GBA. Right. I mean, we like it's like it's not not the not the way you want to do this. Yeah, it's true because you have even fewer buttons available than you had on the Super Nintendo. And on the Super Nintendo, of course, like you're using your your ABXY and then your L and R for your, you know, your your short, medium, fierce punches and then short, medium, fun, uh, fierce kicks. Which, you know, when you're playing on an arcade is a little bit more intuitive because you have the six buttons right there in front of you as opposed to having to use the shoulders. But, like, how, how does it even work with the, the short, medium, fierce on a Game Boy Advance? You don't have six buttons. So, I, I don't, like, this This can't control well. And I was thinking of the same thing about, like, A Link to the Past. I think the only drawback of having it on Game Boy Advance is you just don't have the buttons available to use. I mean, like, maybe they're using the shoulders because I can't remember that. Uh, Link to the Past used the shoulders for like button mapping. Although like I think the dash was mapped to the one of the shoulders when you get like the Pegasus boots. So I don't know. Um, it, it, I, I think that like, one of the big limitations of the Game Boy Advance on a system was just how few buttons they decided to put on it at the time. But the Game Boy Advance version of Street Fighter Alpha 3 had 38 characters which included everyone from all uh, versions of this game, across all platforms, I should say, except for Ingrid. There's a character called Ingrid that uh, is not in the Game Boy Advance version that was in like one or two of the other uh, versions of this game. Oh, get get this. I thought this was pretty wild. Uh, Guile, well-known Street Fighter character, was not mm -hmm. in the original arcade version of Street Fighter Alpha 3. But that, I wonder why. Yeah, it was weird. When the, but when they ported it to other uh, other systems, uh, they put them in. So yeah, weird. I wonder why of all characters that would be left off. He's one of the original eight. Yeah, yeah, very strange. Hmm. So, but yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of the the big thing that I do remember about this is that it had a really stacked roster. It had like all of the OG characters, and then kind kind of like uh, I think they did the same thing with like the Mortal Kombat series, like Ultimate Mortal Kombat three had like just the slew of characters just an absolute absurd number of characters and then after that they kind of again 
focus on I don't know moving the game forward, making it increasing the graphic fidelity, I guess, but also slimming down the roster, re reimagining characters, creating brand new characters. So I don't know. So yeah, uh, when this game came out, nobody gave a flying fuck. It sold like maybe thirty thousand copies, which is abysmal. Really, really bad. You know what's sad is like they could have just made a Street Fighter game specific to the GBA and probably not put much effort into it, and it would have been a better product. Yeah. Like they they could have just m- made a two button fighting game, or or maybe make the combos more flu- one's a punch, one's a kick, and you know you do combos by basically holding directions. Um, and things like that. Like they could still make a fun Street Fighter fighting game, but porting downstream to a console with fewer buttons is never a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I think that if they were thinking more about the platform they were putting it on, they'd be like, okay, well, let's. If we if this is what we have to work with, what's the best product we can make? Like, do do we want to make a, a PvP fighting game on such a, a small system with limited limited amount of buttons? Like, if it were me, if I were running Capcom, I'd be like, well, what if we use the Street Fighter characters and we have like limited combos and stuff? But instead of like a, a PvP fighting game, what if it's just like a side scrolling beat 'em up? And if you add it up, I mean, I'm just looking at the list here of games that they released. There's like maybe 20 games released over a nine-year period in Street Fighter's list here. It's a very good thing that from 2001 to 2007, there is one installment, and it's a hyper-fighting re-release of the other games. Like A long time passes before the last quote-unquote new Street Fighter content, and then 2008's Street Fighter 4, which really does you know, move the franchise forward. So... On to our last Game Boy Advance game. This one is called Lunar Legend. It is a RPG developed by Japan Art Media. Uh, Ubisoft published this one in North America. It is a remake retelling of Lunar Silver Star for Sega CD. There's a pair of games uh, called Lunar RPGs for the Sega CD. there was uh, they were originally developed by a development company called Game Arts, and they're uh, probably w- most well known in RPG circles for their RPG series called Grandia, and they're still around. And they they recently, within the past you know two or three years, ported Grandia around to a bunch of different systems, including the Switch. You can buy a Grandia One and Two HD on Switch, and those are pretty solid RPGs. Both of the Lunar games for the Sega CD got ported around and remade across a bunch of different platforms. Um, also got a couple of different spin-offs, but this uh, game franchise never really stuck, despite getting like good to really great reviews. And like looking at this game on the Game Boy Advance, it probably didn't seem very next gen, even on the GBA at the time. Yeah, it doesn't it was look this- it. Yeah, it was, it was this top-down, really big, chunky sprite-based graphics, and then when you like compare it to its com- contemporaries, some like Golden Sun, I mean, even Golden Sun, like while it was a very traditional JRPG, it did try to do some experimentation just on like the look of it. Like it gave you a different perspective on battles, whereas this Lunar game uh, is very much like old-school Final Fantasy. All your characters are lined up on the right, and all your uh, opponents are going to be lined up on the left. It just did not seem to be a very ambitious game. Um, Pretty much what you expect out of an old-school RPG, like random battles, 
but like the the random battles on the field were apparently not in the original version. That's something that like they they made the battles random when they ported the game around and and to the GBA, which is strange. Like that that's like taking a step backwards. Why'd you do that? Uh, four member party, high fantasy aesthetic is is easy to understand why this game just kind of gets lost to history because it doesn't really seem to do anything special. It reviews decently well but just seems to get outclassed by uh, everything else on the system that it ends up on. It's not available for any download or streaming system. The GBA version has never been re-released. You can get a cart for like 50 bucks if that's what you want to do with your life. But if you're looking for like an RPG series from like this era and are interested in this publisher for some reason, then Grandia is the way to go. Ryan, you got uh, anything you want to tag in with? That's the GBA. Um, specific to the GBA? Yeah, actually, Sonic Advance 2. <laughs> oh, really? I missed that. Just just a, just a note that Sonic Advance 2 came out. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's because, like, you know, you're not too crazy about it. Oh, I mean, well, like, I guess, mm, I don't know if this counts. It got a Japan release. Oh, okay. In December 2002. We'll probably Maybe see, we... Yeah, we'll probably see a North pencil. American release sometime in 2003. Okay, we could pencil this one in for March mm. 2003. Not that I have any intentions of playing it, but I was going to point it out because it did sell over a million units. There you go. Um, that covers the GBA. There's a couple of uh, couple of GameCube games, and then there's some not Nintendo stuff. I don't know if you want to talk about that now. Take us away. Let's go. Let's go to the GameCube. Okay. Uh, GameCube. Uh, GameCube saw like a, a co-released on PS2. Star Wars Bounty Hunter. Mm-hmm. I have this one. Okay. Yeah, it's a, a third-person action adventure game. It didn't get particularly great reviews, and I couldn't find any sales numbers. It looks like it ties into the prequel content, like you're playing as Django Fett. Right. Um, any experience with this one? Did you, did you know much about this? Uh, no, I don't have too much experience with this. Um, LucasArts was still developing and publishing the Star Wars games at the time. Uh, you get a jetpack and a flamethrower and a blaster. I mean, that's if all that's you your need. sort of thing. That's all you need. So like the, the jetpack, I did... Well, that's like that's also the bare minimum. That's like saying you're Mario and you get a hat and some overalls and a fireball. <laughs> So I, I did look up like the the jetpack and the flamethrower uh, use like a sort of shared uh, fuel that refills when you're when you're idle and you're not using them. So there's like a a sort of economy to like when you're using the jetpack and when you want to use the flamethrower. You like have to like uh, give it time in between, so you can't just like jetpack your way through every level. Um, they, they got some auto auto targeting. There's some dodging maneuvers, kind of like feeds into that uh, action. Uh, adventure sort of mechanics that you were talking about before. I don't know. To me, like I, I've never really cared too much about Star Wars, so this game just looked wholly uninteresting. I uh, agree. With with what an incredibly refined product that came out the previous month, I think it was, mm. with Metroid Prime, why would you consider this right. in, in, at all? Why would you be at the store and be like, hmm, do I take this or do I take this? I, and and there's, know, there's better Star Wars games on the GameCube that we've already... Yes. Jedi, Jedi Outcast, Outcast. Jedi Outcast and really uh, Rogue Leader, two two really great games that you know unless you've already played them to death and yeah. really really love Star Wars, I don't see a reason to play this game. Uh, I did find some fun stuff though. So the GameCube version, uh, the GameCube has a faster GPU than a PS2, so the frame rate in the game in the GameCube version is better. Uh, it also has uh, more polygons nice. 
in the character model, so they look better. Uh, the textures are better in the GameCube version uh, because it, the, the GameCube just has better texture compression capabilities. Uh, it has faster load times, better draw distances. Uh, probably still sold worse though. But it is nice that you know a developer and a publisher actually used the uh, better uh, tech uh, capabilities of the GameCube to make like, the best possible version of the game. That's cool. I guess it's just a shame that it had to be yep. this. Uh, it didn't uh, review particularly well. It did review slightly better on the GameCube, probably because of those better technical capabilities. Um, I think like the the most common thing that I saw in the couple of reviews that I looked through um, is that like the game looks and plays competently, but it gets a little repetitive. And I would like to propose that we put this GameCube game at number 27 in our rankings. That would be below Wave Race, but just above Bomberman. Below Wave Race, but above... That feels okay. Wes, I like he consults us like he's talking to <laughs> I know, to right? It's like, no, we're going to do this, aren't we, pal? <laughs> we can do it. Doesn't that sound great? Uh, we we yeah. can go through all uh, forty some of our rankings if we want to get like really forty six. We've now ranked forty six GameCube games. We can go through them all if we want to get like into the weeds about where exactly it should go. No, no, it's fine. No, it's, it's fine. That puts it like just just give me my treat and let's move on. Let's just uh, that that does put it well below Jedi Outcast, the one you mentioned earlier, Ryan, because that one's at number thirteen. And then now Rogue good. Squadron is still in the top 10 mm -hmm. at number 9. Yeah, I think that's totally fine. This feels like a very mid-game that if you were to throw it into the just middle of the pile, it seems all right. I think we talked about this before, where it really only matters when you get close to the top and at the very bottom, where you really want to define what is the worst thing. What is the worst thing and what is the best thing? And if you're right in the middle of the pack, it's just like, okay. So, did you have another GameCube game? Actually, I have, I have three more games. One more, one more Nintendo game to talk about. This is the month in which we get the Two Towers port. Oh. Um, this one came out a little... I think PlayStation 2, for, for whatever reason, I don't know why they make these decisions, but PlayStation 2 uh, got it in October, and GameCube got its version, and maybe even a Game Boy Advance version? I don't know. But the GameCube version came out um, in December. And it got kind of the same reviews, eights, eights out of tens for the most part. It seems like it was a pretty pretty well-enjoyed and, and well-liked game, I guess. Again, this was much more in the like um, action-y hack-and-slash mode. There was a couple of different Lord of the Rings games that were kind of circulating around this time. And this one is obviously a tie-in for a feature-length film that a lot of people probably haven't heard yeah. of called Lord I mean, of the Rings it, 2 Towers. Oh, saying good. <laughs> we'll get into it. <laughs> um, so th there's like this interesting thing, like you're saying about these Lord of the Rings games, where they lean more into like a sort of action hack and slash genre, um, which is I think like a sign of like where gaming was at the time, especially like Western game development, where there wasn't a whole lot of faith in uh, something like like an RPG, which I think makes a lot more sense for a Lord of the Rings property to actually have it like. Uh, a more traditional RPG because like a lot of traditional RPGs are based on the sort of like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien sort of a take on, on fantasy. So it is kind of funny to see it like 
loop around to be like, hey, this thing that inspired so many RPGs is not an RPG. It is interesting. I actually think there's a number of different game. Like, I feel like Lord of the Rings just as a property translates so well to so many things. Couldn't you imagine like an RTS style where you're commanding a hundred units into battle? Or couldn't you also imagine, you know, like a, a narrative adventure playing along here? I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot that can be done oh, with yeah. it. And, and yeah, I, I think you're right. They never really did bother to just make a traditional RPG like all of the you can see how their character classes are clearly defined as a small unit. It would work out so well, but I guess they just withheld that from us. Yeah, weird. Um, any other GameCube? That takes care of all my Nintendo games. Yeah. I have I have two PC or sorry PS2 games to talk about. If that's real quick, I can just talk about them real fast. Let's do it. Okay, you actually have a game. I didn't. The sales numbers on this were kind of bonkers. I was surprised, but Dragon Ball Z. Budokai? Oh, one of the Budokai On games? the PlayStation mm, okay. 2? Yeah, uh, this is a 2D fighter uh, built around, obviously, around the Dragon Ball franchise by Bandai Namco. Um, it looks like GameCube will get a port of this at some time. I think sometime in 2003. But this thing sold like 3 million units and was hmm. an especially big seller in Japan. Um, got pretty good reviews, and honestly, it looks great. Um, I think that it used... I don't know if you can call it the cell shading, but for whatever reason, the art style just holds up so, so well. Um, this game looks like a lot of fun. I don't know how it plays on a GameCube controller or whatever, but I don't know. It's 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 cool. It's a cool little footnote, and maybe maybe in 2003, if it's the sort of thing that we want to talk about yeah. for GameCube, we can, we can get to it then. Um, I'm down. The only other game, and this is one of those like uh, bottom of the barrel worst games of the year kind of thing. Oh, um, but amazing. this is the uh, again because you know I'm sure PlayStation looks at GameCube and is like, what do they got that we don't? Okay, so they got a party game. We'll make a party game. So they got Nintendo or sorry, not Nintendo. What was I? Nickelodeon Party Blast. Have you heard of this? I have not. Okay, this is a really really bad game made with Nickelodeon's IP. Um, it has a. It sits at currently on IGN a 1.1 out of 10. Oh. <laughs> Way wow. to use so, the bottom of that scale. Good job. Yeah, yeah. So uh, on top of countless bugs and just janky performance all around, um, I, I think it's difficult because like you know, the there's. A, I forget how you just... So they, I heard them descri someone describing the Nickelodeon this way, where it's like, they have a rabid fan base that turns over every three years. Hmm. Right? They lose their fan base so fast because kids simply get older. Oh. Um, and I think that what they mean by that is that if you're looking at 2002, like, this is not the roster I grew up with and that I care about from Nickelodeon. I'd love to see a Nickelodeon game made with the content I grew up on, but this isn't that. It's things like Jimmy Neutron and SpongeBob, and like Wild Thornberries. Hey, and Arnold. Like, yeah, that's the yeah, song I grew I mean, up I, with. You know, I, oh, yeah, that is. The, so then maybe this is the game for you. Well, you know, here's the thing. Here's also the reason why it's not. Apparently, they also hired scab voice actors. Um, you know, you'd think that the thing that people would want the most is like the original voice actors of the characters. They didn't even do that. So they got in all of these other people who aren't the voice actors to do do it and it's just ugh. it's it, i can understand why people absolutely hated this game yeah, this game looks like it was made on the cheap yeah, it looks so um, cheesy i don't even know they're just supposed to catch balls and get them in the hoops i don't even know what's happening 
I think you're so, looking at NBA Live. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's that's out there. I just thought that was a yeah, funny like... note because I think if if we were doing a worst games of 2002, this would make the uh, make the short list. That's it. That's it. Is it what we got for games? That's all I got for games. So we are at the end of 2002 for games. Just got some some quick questions that I wanted to throw at you guys. Uh, how are mm-hmm. you feeling about the GameCube now that we're a year plus in to the life cycle of this console? Feel it okay about it. I mean, I feel like this whole year I've looked at the PlayStation lineup and I've been a little um, starry-eyed with that, mm-hmm. but you have to look at it in a vacuum. And the GameCube had a really good year this year. A lot of great games came out. Yeah. I, I I wish I was more... I had a GameCube at the time. I got a GameCube really late. Like, I think I had a PS3 when I had a GameCube. Like, it was just... Yeah, oh, shit. it was just... But, yeah, this is a pretty cool little system. Yeah, I think uh, it's got a really great top 10. And especially when you're, like, looking at the N64, the previous system we were talking about, you get just a much more diverse lineup of games from a bunch of different uh, game developers. Uh especially when we get toward like the middle and the end of the N64 was like the past the initial like year or so a lot of the things we were saying were the same sort of like here's a sports game here's a shooter here's a racer that was kind of the lineup we were dealing with whereas you know now with uh, this system we got a bunch of different type of things and you know like it it can sometimes look a little sparse when comparing it to the PS2, and it's just going to look especially sparse when we get to like the the middle of the life cycle to the end of it, especially when compared to the PS2, because you know the PS2 was just like this this powerhouse console that everyone was putting their games on. But you know the the we're, we're going to have a lot more interesting things to talk about and dissect than we did on the previous generation, like. Once we get through, like 2003 is a really great year for the GameCube. Once we get through 2003, the top 10 to 15 probably aren't going to shift around that much, but there's going to be a lot more highs in the middle ground than we definitely had with the N64. You know, uh, 1 through uh, 15 are going to be really, really great, but then like uh, 16 through 30 are also going to be really interesting things to talk about. Uh, You guys got like a, a standout favorite game from the past year? Uh, I'll just like let, let you know. Like for for me, it's got to either be Metroid yeah. or the Resident Evil remake. Those are those are great titles. Yeah, um, you gotta love the GameCube for giving us so much Resident Evil content. Mm. Um, yeah, Metroid Prime sticks out as being a really good yeah. game. Um, I, I didn't really bother to do any like year end wrap up of all of the content we've talked about. Oh, obviously, Blood Rain. That's a short <laughs> list. Of, of, Great ones. Um, I mean, and yeah, and in the non-Nintendo world, obviously, like Vice City was a mm. was a banger. That yeah, was a super huge, important huge game. game. Um, I, I had to watch Blade yeah. Runner recently. Yeah. You oh, had to. You. That's a that's a that's a you both film, dude. Yeah, because okay? mm. I I've been recording that other stuff for that other podcast, and that was the movie that he challenged me to watch was Blood Rain. I was like, oh, this is all right. Was... Like he keeps giving me those uh, UA Bolt movies. I watched yeah, that. Yeah, House he's, he's of the a Dead terrible director. What else did I watch? Uh, DOA. Mm-hmm. I've watched a few. Ugh. Ugh. Uh, should note Eternal Darkness mm-hmm. came out came out this year. That was a really good game. I don't think. Did you mention that one? You might have already mentioned that one. No, I didn't mention that one. That's a good one. Um, 
yeah, I'm just scrolling through the list here, seeing what all came out, and this is this is what's sticking out to me for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, just uh, like a quick peek into 2003 for the GameCube. We're going to be talking about like, a couple more Resident Evils coming right up next month. We'll be able to talk about those. We'll also have Wind Waker, uh, F Zero, Beautiful Joe, Mario Kart Double Dash. A personal favorite of mine, Wes I Ninja, oh. is going to be 2003. Oh, yeah. I Ninja. Do we have a way to replay that? No. And and that's that's the thing. Like the, the thing that. Uh, I'm most annoyed about when talking about all these GameCube games is there's no like quick accessible way to play them. Uh, there's no like uh, download service. There's no like streaming service that has a lot of these things available. I, it, it really is a shame because you know, I, I have a handful of these games uh, on my system, um, but I, I really would like to like have better access to a wider library of these sort of things, and it's just not there. I had a, a factoid I was going to hit you guys with in the January episode, but since we're kind of peeking ahead anyways, I feel like now's the time to tell you. Let's do it. Um, that, in my opinion, 2003 will be the peak year of the GameCube. Uh, four of the top ten best-selling games will come out on in that year, which is more than any other year. Um, and this will also be the last time a GameCube game cracks the top ten in sales. Hmm. Um, so this is also kind of when we're seeing peaking also in the regards that this is when it starts to taper off and they start to look ahead to the next generation. Yeah. 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 Um, which is kind of wild to think that, uh, it feels like it would be such a short life cycle. I mean, it's, we've still got a couple more years to live through this console, but it feels like it's a pretty short life cycle. Now, you know, we, we are going to see like through 2004, or 2005, um, We'll, we'll at least have a couple of interesting games a month to talk about, uh, but it's it's not going to be nearly as as vibrant a, a, a arena as the PS2. Um, but yeah, the, the the music definitely stopped in 2003, where they realized like I, this this console is not picking up the steam that we needed to pick up. So they'll pivot. They'll they'll do a drastic price cut. I think it was in 2003, like right around the time Wind Waker comes out, they'll cut the price of this console to $99. It'll be super fucking cheap to pick one of these things up. And um, they'll, they'll also pivot to try to bring more attention to their handheld space. Because before the GameCube, the, the GameCube and the GBA launched within the same year, if you remember. And before the GameCube life cycle or the GBA life cycle is over, they'll launch the DS and try to have this this other, they'll, at the time they'll call it the third pillar, but it's really a successor to the GBA. Uh, but they'll try to have like this, this extra piece of hardware out there to kind of help prop themselves up. Oh, and the, yeah, the GBA will do very, very well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's again, we'll talk about all of this in 2003, maybe in when we do our January episode of just how it's not just Nintendo. Like, virtually all media is going to take a big hit. Mm -hmm. Like, movies, music, everything. Everything will drop off substantially compared to 2002. Oh, should we talk about some music? Oh, yeah, and again, I was again, I was not joking, guys. I've got literally four yeah. albums to mention with no real depth. Um, Nas released the album called Godson. If you don't know who Nas is, he's like a New York rapper from the mid-90s. Really, really big. He's like the guy that lived when you look at you know Tupac and Biggie 
Nas lived. <laughs> so he had a long career. Even Nas fans aren't big on this album, God's Son. I listen to it, and I, I'm not even a big Nas guy. It's just not, not great. Mariah Carey, she releases um, Charm Bracelet. Mariah Carey owns December every year, um, but this was a really uneventful record, and it has no good hits on it, like no big singles on it. Like She has hundreds of millions of listens to most of her songs. And this album's top track had, I think, like 3 million listens. So it's a totally un uh, totally forgettable record. And like, I also think it's important to note, like, yeah, 50 years from now, people will know Mariah Carey as the Christmas lady. Mm -hmm. um, her music is inescapable. My, my buddy was telling me the other day that she is very close to the record of most weeks spent in the top 40 for a single song. It's because of her Christmas song, and because every year it goes into the top forty. So it's kind of like this yeah. weird asterisk of, like, hey, yeah, she, like this the song has been in the top forty for this many weeks, but only for five weeks at a time, all in December. Yeah, and every year, tons and tons of new Christmas albums come out, but um, for whatever reason, hers hers really stand the test of time. And she has a great voice, like to her mm -hmm. credit. Like Mariah Carey has an incredible voice. Um, and the production on her albums are, are great. But this, again, if it's not Christmas music, this album is totally forgettable. The one interesting thing, and this is like a def, this is one of those textbook examples of a one hit wonder. I'm sure you guys all know this song. But do you guys remember Tattoo? The band, all the things she, the, but the song, all the things she said? The Russian lesbian duo that uh, took America by storm. I don't remember no. this. You guys don't know this. <laughs> I bet if you listen to it, you would probably remember it, because um, they were they were kind of a hot commodity. As soon as like I hear the song, I'd be like, oh yeah, that one, but I don't mm -hmm. remember it by name. <laughs> well, then I guess this one didn't have the impact I thought it did. No, but it's actually got like hundreds of millions of listens. It's um, you know, I'm sure the second you'll hear, you'll remember it. It's it's funny. Their their album. It's 200 miles per hour in the wrong lane, which is a great title for an album, but. Uh, otherwise, yeah, who gives a shit about this record? Uh, it's it, it was funny, but they never had another hit song, and I think once uh, it's it's like a who let the dogs out kind of thing, you know? I think everyone knew the Baja men weren't really going anywhere, but thanks thanks for who let the dogs out. <laughs> and that's in that same way, all the things she said was a huge damn. Okay. Um, one last album, and that is Hate Eternal. This is a death metal band released the album King of All Kings, sneaking in here with a great great death metal record, like. This one of the this has been such a good such a good year for heavy music and um, they're really closing it out nice. This is like a Jersey-based band. They incorporate a lot of like um, like New York mosh stuff with just insane drumming and just riffs piled on top of riffs that really just crash into other guitar riffs. It's great. It's really really good. I, I love it. If you love death metal, you really got to listen to Hate Eternals. King of All Kings, and that's it. That's the music for the year. I don't really want to talk about anything else that came out in December. There's nothing really worthwhile. Cool. Well, when uh, when January rolls back around, we are going to get back to judging the album art. We'll be better prepared. <laughs> Wes, I found our I found our niche. We're Judge gonna, the. Well, when Ryan talks about we the gotta music, talk about the album we're, art. We're gonna, I'm on board for that. Uh huh.